Hello there, I'm Nim, and this is A Spoonful of Medicine, topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. On today's episode, we're looking at congenital diaphragmatic hernias. How often do they present? What do their children look like? And how are they managed? So get ready to learn about diaphragmatic hernias in the neonate. When we look at the embryology and pathogenesis, we understand that the septum transversum extends to divide the pleural and coelomic cavities during fetal development. This precursor of the diaphragm normally completes separation at the posterior lateral aspects. And so it is the failure of the pleuroperitoneal membrane closure in utero that allows viscera to pass through into the chest, thereby causing congenital diaphragmatic hernias. Indeed, these posterior laterally occurring hernias are the most common type of congenital diaphragmatic hernias, and they are also known as boctolec hernias. It is the entrance of viscera from the abdominal into the thoracic cavity that causes a large proportion of the clinical signs of symptoms, such as a scaphoid abdomen, hyperplastic lungs, and pulmonary hypertension. Less commonly, retrosternal defect in the diaphragmatic membrane can cause diaphragmatic hernias, and these are called Morgani hernias. These ones don't often present as emergencies in the neonatal period. Epidemiologically, Diaphragmatic hernias occur 1 in 3,300 births. They are most commonly boctolec in type and are left-sided more than they are right-sided. Hernias of the diaphragm are often picked up on antenatal ultrasound as early as 15 weeks. Earlier, the diagnosis antenatally corresponds to a worser outcome. They often are detected as herniated viscera into the chest, a lung mass, a lung anomaly, altered liver position, or a mediastinal shift. Overall, congenital diaphragmatic hernias confer a significant mortality risk, and this is up to 50%. So you're on a neonatal ward, or you've started your neonatal rotation. How does a child with a congenital diaphragmatic hernia present? The clinical presentation is dependent on the severity of the hernia itself, and there may be some indication with a lung-to-head ratio from an antenatal scan. Ratios less than 1 confer an increased risk of a severe congenital diaphragmatic hernia. Once the infant is born, they may have diminished breath sounds on the affected side, as well as a cardiac shift and a scaphoid abdomen. These infants have immediate respiratory distress at birth, and this is secondary to three main factors. First, the air-filled gut in the chest compresses the mobile mediastinum. This leads to a mediastinal shift and compression of the contralateral lung. This goes on to cause compromised gas exchange. Secondly, the affected side or lung has decreased arterioles and hypoplastic alveoli. This leads to pulmonary hypertension 
a persistent fetal circulation, and then consequent right-to-left shunting. This decreases pulmonary perfusion and impairs gas exchange. Finally, hypoplasia of the lung on the affected side and or hypoplasia of the contralateral lung significantly impairs respiratory function. It is pulmonary hypertension leading to significant right-to-left shunting across a patent for Raymond Oval or PDA and the degree of lung hypoplasia that are the leading causes of cardiorespiratory insufficiency. So most infants are therefore hypoxic, hypercapnic and acidotic at birth and often require intubation and ventilation and neonatal ICU admission. Some infants have a honeymoon period of about 24 to 48 hours of relative stability, high arterial oxygen saturations and good perfusion. However, they do go on to decompensate. Differentials of congenital diaphragmatic hernias include bronchopulmonary foregut malformations, and these are seen as intrathoracic loops and can be confused for lung or foregut pathology in antenatal scans. Cardiophrenic fat pads may be mistaken for Morgani hernias. And finally, focal diaphragmatic eventration can be mistaken for diaphragmatic hernia. Some conditions that can be associated with congenital diaphragmatic hernias include congenital cardiac diseases, trisomy 21, pentology of cantrell, and intestinal malrotation. Following birth, a diagnosis of a diaphragmatic hernia is often done by chest x-ray. In this x-ray, you see air-filled loops in the chest, a loss of the diaphragmatic contour, and there may be mediastinal deviation. An echo is also indicated to assess the degree of pulmonary hypertension and the presence of other cardiac anomalies. Now let's have a look at the management of congenital diaphragmatic hernias. The paradigm can be differentiated or separated into the NICU and then into the surgery. Upon birth, prompt cardiorespiratory stabilisation, often with intubation, ventilation and oxygenation, is required. Note that face mask and nasal prong oxygen is contraindicated because this causes increased distension of the stomach. Additionally, a nasogastric or orogastric tube is placed to minimise gastric distension. As most of the clinical instability is driven by the pulmonary hypertension leading to right-to-left shunting, management is directed at reducing pulmonary hypertension and minimising barotrauma while optimising oxygenation. These babies are intubated and ventilated with relatively low or gentle settings as to not overinflate the unaffected lung, i.e. minimising barotrauma. They may need high-frequency oscillatory ventilation. Arterial O2 levels of 50 to 60 millimetres mercury with permissive hypercapnia are accepted. Neonatologists may also reduce pulmonary hypertension by inhaled nitric oxide or systemic bicarbonate to correct the acidosis. As pulmonary hypertension increases, right-sided heart failure ensues and peripheral perfusion may be compromised. IV fluids can compound this. 
Often, these babies require inotropic support, and this assists in maintaining contractility and mean arterial pressure. If infants remain profoundly hypoxic despite all of the above interventions, they may need ECMO. When it comes to surgery, it is done when hemodynamic stability is achieved and pulmonary status is optimised. This may take a few days after birth. There is surgeon-to-surgeon variation. Some may repair whilst a child is still in ECMO, while others may wait until pulmonary hypertension and lung function is improved. The surgical approaches can be abdominal or thoracic, with an abdominal approach frequently preferred. If the hernial orifice is large, prosthetic material may be needed to bridge the hernial orifice. A chest strain is often placed in order to minimise the risk of a problem hemothorax. In terms of outcome, although lung compression and pulmonary hypertension can be managed, pulmonary hypoplasia can be fatal if it is severe despite surgical correction of the hernia itself. 70 to 80% of children survive with a combination of permissive hypoxia, hypercapnia, judicious use of ECMO and delayed surgery. However, there is need for long-term follow-up to monitor lung function, growth and development of these babies. Okay, you know what that means. It's time for a recap. Congenital diaphragmatic hernias are caused by the failure of the pleuroperitoneal membrane to close in utero, resulting in viscera to pass into the chest. The most common type of congenital diaphragmatic hernias are boctolic type hernias, and these are posterior lateral in location and are more often left-sided. The other less common type of hernia is a Morgani hernia, and these are retrosternal, smaller and present older in age. Diaphragmatic hernias can be picked up antenatally as early as 15 weeks, showing herniated viscera into the chest, lung masses, a lung anomaly, altered liver position or a mediastinal shift. Lung to head ratio can also be calculated to predict the overall clinical severity. Infants with congenital diaphragmatic hernias are born with immediate respiratory distress, and this is due to three main factors. One is compression of the contralateral lung, secondary to a chest filled with gut. Secondarily, there are reduced arterioles and hypoplastic alveoli, causing pulmonary hypertension and right-to-left shunting, therefore decreasing pulmonary perfusion and gas exchange. Finally, a hypoplastic lung on the affected side and or hypoplastic lung on the contralateral side reduces respiratory efficiency. The diagnosis of a congenital diaphragmatic hernia after birth is often made with chest x-ray that shows air-filled loops in the chest, a loss of a diaphragmatic contour and a mediastinal shift. Echo also needs to be done to assess the degree of pulmonary hypertension and whether there is associated cardiac anomalies. In terms of management, in the NICU, prompt cardiorespiratory stabilisation is required. Pulmonary hypertension and respiratory status is then optimised.
prior to consideration of surgery. Infants that do not improve on intubation and ventilation may require ECMO. Surgery is often done when the hemodynamic stability is achieved or optimised. If defects are large, prosthetic material may be needed to bridge a hernial orifice. Chest drains are often left in to avoid problematic hemothoraces. Finally, there is a 70 to 80% overall survival. However, these babies do need long-term follow-up to monitor their lung function, growth and development. And that's been this week's episode of A Spoonful of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend. For the visual learners of us out there, head over to our Instagram page at spoonful.of.medicine for a quick summary of today's episode, along with some other great educational content. If you'd like to get in touch, have a suggestion for a future episode, or have heard something that you think needs a correction, please email us on spoonfulofmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. It's been a pleasure topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. I can't wait for you to join us on our next episode. But until then, bye.